Let's indeed turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 17 as we continue to march through this beautiful, compelling book. Uh, You'll remember from last week that Paul and his team had gone to Thessalonica, they went to Berea, they had some success there in Berea, but then the Thessalonian uh, unbelievers came, chased them out of the city, they ran away, and so Paul lands by himself in the city of Athens, Greece, and it's there alone that he preaches the gospel. So this is our larger passage, but I'm going to pick up with Paul's uh, gospel presentation itself, beginning in Acts chapter 17 and verse 22. Paul says this, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives life to all mankind and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would make yourself clear, clear to your church, clear to the city, that we would know you as the creator God who gives us meaning to seek you and to find you and to be found in you in the resurrection of your son. That's a beautiful belonging. And we pray for that for us and for our friends in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Paul now lands in Athens, which is the cradle of Greek mythology and philosophy. Athens is the home to giants like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and Epicurus. It's named after the goddess Athena, and it is populated with idols and authors and idlers, our text says, who spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So all that cute stuff that Paul and his team did back in Berea with the Old Testament scroll and those eager quaint Jews that were looking for Jesus on every single page, you can park that when you get to Athens because this is a big boy secular city that eats gospel diagrams for breakfast and your Old Testament scroll is not welcome here, what are you going to do? How will you preach Jesus in a place that is hostile to that name and does not believe that dead people can get up from the dead? Where would you go to speak Jesus's name? Well, Paul doesn't wing it. 
He takes it very seriously. He takes it very soberly. And he starts with a lot of listening before he does any talking. Imagine that. Imagine all of the problems that could be solved in my own life if I would be slow to speak and quick to listen. Paul wants to listen to what's in this city first. Have you ever been evangelized by somebody who didn't know you were a Christian and didn't wait to find out? I mean, they just kind of launched into a gospel presentation. I see some nods. I had a friend who had a super awkward situation. I mean, full-on introduction, whole gospel, pressed for a decision, finally gets the chance to say, gee, thank you for all of that. I am a born-again believer, but I appreciate the enthusiasm. Well, Paul is going to start with listening And he's picking up stuff all over the place. I mean, he's doing listening when he's talking with the philosophers in verse 18. He's doing listening when he's walking around the city and he's seeing their idols and altars. And he's reading the inscriptions in verse 21. We find out that he had actually been reading some of their authors and poets in verse 28. Paul was listening because he knew what we know. Every human heart longs for something. Every human heart is born with a longing for something. God has made us this way. God has designed us this way. We are longing for something. And an evangelist is God's matchmaker that takes the human longing and matches it to God's provision that can be satisfied and found only in him. But you don't get the longing, you don't know what the person wants or thinks they want if you don't start with listening. And so Paul realizes, before I blurt out a hundred things about the gospel, let me hear what's closest on their mind and heart, and we're going to start with that. No gospel presentation is the same. It's like snowflakes. I mean, they're all different, and they're different in the book of Acts. They're different today. But man, how helpful to sit and listen to somebody, beginning to end, share the gospel with another person. That's what we get to do today. And Paul's going to do it in these three parts. He's going to hook them in the beginning, connect with their longing. Then he's going to deliver the truths, the substance of the gospel and who God is. And then he's going to press them for a personal response, a decision. We're going to watch all three of those things. And they won't only show us about how to do evangelism, but they will re-remind us of who this God is that we know and serve and love. So he starts with a hook in verses 22 and 23. Because he's been doing all that listening, he now has a starting point for the gospel. And we pick that up in verse 22 when he says, I perceive that in every way you are very religious and tells them that he's been in their city and seen all of their altars. Now, Paul could have said if he was tone deaf, I've seen all these altars and I see that you are an idolatrous people. This is evil and this is wicked, but he doesn't. He actually has a kind word to say about all of their altar making. Do you see what Paul's doing? He's giving dignity to the longing that they have in their hearts. They can't help it. They feel this urgent need to worship and they feel an urgent need to know the God that they worship. And even though they're doing it in the wrong way, Paul is able to say, I see that and that is good and wholesome. God has put that desire there. Makes me think of that very famous Bruce Marshall quote. It's often attributed to G.K. Chesterton when he says, strikingly, 
I believe that sex is a substitute for religion, that the young man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. Do you know that? When our friends are seeking things, when I myself am seeking things that cannot satisfy, I am unconsciously or suppressing the truth that I am looking for God. Now, of course, we don't praise sin, we don't condone sin, but an insightful, listening believer looks for the longing behind the sin. You tell me your sin, and I want to find out what brought you there. What drives you? What are you looking for? Why would you go back to something that you know is going to hurt you and hurt other people? Why do you give so much away to something you know can't possibly satisfy you? I need to say that to myself in the mirror, but I also have a chance to sit with a friend and say that to them. What is the longing that drives you? Paul, because he's listening, spots the longing. You guys are a religious people and you want to worship, but then he spots the failure in the satisfaction. He says, you just threw up an altar to an unknown God because you wanted to be careful that you were covering all your bases. And so it's that entry point that draws the entire audience in to say, he knows us and he knows what we're talking about. He knows what we're thinking about. And I want to listen to what he has to say next. So because of that hook, because of that listening, because of that longing, we're able to get to his second point, which are the truths that he wants to share with them in verses 24 to 29. Paul is going to share two truths about God, and they are two truths that speak precisely to what those in Athens were thinking, worrying, and wondering themselves. There are a hundred things he could say about God. He chooses the two that are at the forefront of his hearers' minds. This is what you need to know about God because this is what you are after and longing for. Number one, the first truth he gives about God is that God creates the world. He's answering the question that they're asking, how the heck did we get here? How did we get here? What's the story of our origin? Why are we here? Do we have any philosophy majors in the building? Anybody majoring or minoring in philosophy here? We got one person who will admit it. Marry Rich and you will do well. Um, If you're a philosophy major or if you've dabbled in philosophy, I don't need to tell you about the two schools of philosophy that get introduced in verse 18. So you can look back. We didn't read this. But we find out there are Stoics and there are Epicureans. Both of their founders were born in Athens. Both of them have an entire school of thought after them. And both of them have origin stories. You can't cut it as a philosopher unless you can tell us how we got here. And they both have a hypothesis for how we got here. And they actually don't sound unlike the hypotheses we throw out today for what we're doing here on this earth. The Stoics believed that the material world always existed from uncreated matter. Isn't that convenient? It's always been. Whatever we have, it's just always been here. This sounds like a politician's answer to the question of how did we get here? Are you going to raise taxes? The material world has always existed from uncreated matter. I don't have to answer that question. There is no answer. The Epicureans, for their benefit, try to take a stab at it. 
And they were saying 2,400 years ago, tell me if this sounds familiar, that the world is a result of a random collision of matter that resulted in a bang that was big. Does that sound familiar to anyone? This has been told for 2,400 years in philosophical thinking. There was an apologist, Francis Schaeffer, who wrote a book, He Is There and He Is Not Silent, that said, when you're asking the question, how did we get here? What is the origin of the universe? There are only three possible answers. You can take any philosophical, any scientific school of thought, and they must fall in three categories. Number one, there is no explanation. Check, we got the Stoics. Number two, there is a purely impersonal material explanation. Check, we got that in the Epicureans. Which then leads, number three, there must be a personal explanation that is connected to a greater power like a creator or a designer God. Once that's laid on the table, Paul has his entry point to begin to introduce uh, item number three, a personal God to them. He's walking through the door that they created. They opened the door. They're asking those questions. He walks through that because of the altar. And then he is going to give them this personal God. He doesn't skimp on biblical theology. He gives them the God of the Bible without ever opening the Bible. He says, let me tell you about this God that you say you don't know about. He is revealed to us. And he talks about him in verses 24 to 25. He says, there is one God. And that he has created every speck of matter, seen and unseen, in the physical world, in the spiritual realm, over which he is supreme king, and from which he does not need anything, not least any altar or gift that we can make or give to him. But on the contrary, he gives life and breath and breathing to every living thing by the word of his power. That's God. Everybody do that. Deep breath together. Doesn't that feel good? God is in this place. Verse 25. And for you to take that breath, he has held you in his hands. He's given you that power. And you live another breath. That's God. Well, now that Paul has our attention about this creator God, he's ready for the second point. God creates everything. Number two, God designs the world to draw it back to himself. I'm asking the question how I got here. And after I ask that question, I want to know what is the meaning of life? What am I going to do now that I'm here? And based on the accounts of how we got here, it shouldn't surprise us that neither the Stoics nor the Epicureans had any notion that there was a grand design or purpose for the universe. If they're saying we're born by chance or by determinism, then the best they can say is that we must scratch out, eke out an existence in a pursuit of some semblance of happiness or peace. That's the best you can come up with if you don't have a design for how we got here. Now, honestly, I appreciate that because 
One of my biggest beefs with unbelievers, and if you're here this morning on your spiritual journey, you want to talk about this. One of my biggest beefs with those who reject God and reject a creative design is when you subscribe to origin story number one or number two. It's always been here. There's no explanation or there's a purely material explanation. And then they try to overlay on top of meaninglessness some kind of meaning for how we are to live our lives. That's not fair. If there's no meaning for how we got here, there is no meaning to where we are going. If there's no design for why we are here, there is no design for why I should get out of bed in the morning and do anything, right? We've got a thrift house, the thrift store that's right up the road from my house. I go there about once a month. My dad goes there every day. Um, It's a nice little spot. It's got a bunch of junk you don't need. But in the back, there's like this kid's area. It's this one room that has all the board games and toys and and everything. And for a long time, it looked like some kids or some small animals got back there. And like everything was on the floor. So there was like a thousand puzzle pieces mixed together with action figures and chewing gum. And it was just like a disaster. When you walk into that room and look at that, would you say that there is a grand design to that mess? Absolutely not. But to try to overlay meaning on top of meaninglessness would be like saying, hey, babe, let's pour a glass of wine and let's spend a Saturday night trying to put this puzzle together. That can't be done. It's not true. To ascribe meaning where there is no meaning cannot happen. How did you get here? I am a cosmic accident of colliding atoms in black nothingness. What is the meaning of life? Oh man, all kinds of things. I want to love and be loved. I want to be the best me I can be. I want to leave my mark on the world. I want to be kind to others. I want to live a full and satisfied life wrong. That is philosophically untenable. That's intellectually dishonest. An honest stoic or epicurean or unbeliever ought to say that I am here by accident. What I do actually doesn't matter. And when I'm dead, it's over. That is so true, so raw, so stark, so terrifying. I have not in my entire life met an unbeliever who subscribes to no origin story who could live within that philosophy. That's terrifying. That's a terrifying existence. But it's over and against that dark, brutal, philosophical honesty that Paul preaches that the God who had a plan for creation is also a God who has planned for meaningful living. He has a design for what we're doing here. It might not feel that way. Some of us might still be seeking for what that design is. I like how German philosopher Martin Heidegger put it when he said that being born feels out of control. He says we are thrown into existence. Anybody wake up this morning or wake up to your consciousness and feel like, man, I am just thrown into existence. Like 
my hometown or my parents or my generational story of its highs and lows or my proclivities to certain vices. They're just slapped together on this assembly line and out I pop into this frenzy of trying to make meaning for myself. It sure feels like I was thrown into existence. But God says there's a method to the madness. Verse 26, you are placed precisely where he would have you. Now, hang on a second. It's easy to read verse 26 and not understand the implications of that. You're telling me that on this earth, there are now almost 8 billion people, and that only constitutes 7% of the human beings that have ever lived for all history. And you're trying to tell me that there is a God who is so great and grand and glorious and powerful that he could actually place every single person where they are for a specific purpose. And verse 26 says, absolutely. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Why would he do that? Why would God go to the trouble to hand place humanity rather than just kind of dealing us out? Verse 27 tells us the answer that we should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. God's sovereignty works for our salvation. God's sovereignty works for our salvation. You and I have been placed precisely where God has put us, that we would see God's hand in creation, that we would hear God's plan through believers around us, that we would have an opportunity to respond to his invitation, to receive from him that most soul-satisfying of human endeavors to know the living God. God doesn't merely give us breath in verse 25. He gives us gospel air in verse 27 that we might know him and be known by him. You take a room this size, you take the early service, you take hundreds of people, and imagine a worship service where we went around the room, whether you're a born-again believer or you're here this morning and you're somewhere on your spiritual journey, and we shared how it is that God brought you here. How fascinating. No two stories would be alike. All of them would be miraculous because behind every story of you sitting under the word of God is God placing you where you would go, turning you where you should go, and bringing you precisely to this point. I heard this great story of Providence just this week where one of our students was sharing the gospel with another student and that student was kind of wrestling with atheism and then kind of agnosticism and um, And in a conversation with that student, the one student said, the seeker said to the believer, "Um, I got this idea. I've lost my wallet. It's been gone for a week and um, I can't find it. It's got my ID, credit card. I prayed that if God would locate my wallet, I would believe that he would exist. So my friend said what I would say, that is, you know, we don't actually pray those kind of prayers. That's like putting God to the test and, and God doesn't perform magic tricks for you to believe in him. But the student walked away, went back, looked in her car, found her wallet, and said, God did that. 
Isn't that incredible? That's a sovereign story. That is God at work in the world that just blows me away in my own faith, my own seeking to know God is even out there answering imprecise, wrong theological prayers. He's moving, he's dwelling, he's having his way in the world. So he hooks us, Paul does. He gives us these truths about the creator God that brings meaning. And finally, he calls for a response in verses 30 to 31. I don't know if you're guilty of this, but I am. Sometimes I'm good about bringing up the gospel with a friend or sharing part of the gospel or or inviting somebody to church or giving them a resource or something to read or something to hear. But part and parcel of evangelism is looking for that right place and time where I will actually call for a response. This isn't just information that I've given you. I'm asking you, What are you going to do with this? How will you respond to this? What do you believe about that? This is a call for someone to respond. Paul says that at the revelation of Jesus and his conquest of sin and death, all humanity is accountable. God is bringing his judgment day according to verse 31. And as one commentator writes, it is definite. He has fixed a day that we don't know. It's universal that he will judge the world. It is just because he will do it in righteousness and it's personal because it's by a man whom he has appointed, Jesus himself. This is the appeal to the unbeliever, knowing that that judgment day exists, knowing that you've been created for this purpose, repent and believe. Own the sin within yourself before God. Be honest about that. Receive from him his precious gift of salvation through his son, Jesus. Repent and believe and you will have this salvation. But there's also an assurance here to the believer, which is according to verse 31, Easter. And of this, he gives assurance to all by raising Jesus from the dead. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we so seek to be in control of our lives and what we do and the decisions we make. It's very disconcerting to hear at first that there's a divine God who stands over all, who has placed us precisely for this very purpose that we would seek you, find you, and know you through your son, Jesus. I pray that you would bear that fruit in us and in our church body and in our city as you continue to do this glorious work in Columbia. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.